My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts <coughs> of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From places adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of oak. Listen, O oh daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetrate your memory for all generations. Therefore, the nations May God add his holy blessing and favor to this inspired hymn. George, may I ask you to open our service with prayer. Amen. Amen. Will you take your red hymnal and turn with me to number two? Number two in the Red Trinity.
anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? had to call you. You're the only one that moved. Oh, the piano player. Yes, Dan. And can it be? Is it in this one? Four fifty-five. Four five five in this one. Is this just because no one else was speaking up?
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 28, and that'll be page 1552 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28. After John was put in prison, Jesus went on to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little while farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus sternly said. Come out of him. The evil spirit took the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Father in heaven, as we absorb what has just been read, Lord, we pray that your spirit be upon us. It opens the hearts of the lost and they could understand that life without Christ in their lives is futile and useless. Draw the sinner to us, Lord. Bring him to the cross, that God may find favor with them and save them and give them eternal life. But Lord, we also ask that we who belong to you would be comforted by the salvation that we so richly and deeply enjoy. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. We take your red hymnal again and turn to 342. I know it says 343, but two, turn to 342. Same song, but the familiar tune. 342 in the red.
Our text today is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 26 and following. And our theme today is Christ and the Holy Spirit. Christ and the Holy Spirit. In today's study, we want to see the glorious connection between Christ and the Holy Spirit, and then by way of personal help, some application for our own living. What we are going to discover is that whatever Christ did in terms of his earthly ministry, it was inspired and led by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us the clue, the big example, that if we're going to have God work in our lives, it's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that the, that those things are accomplished. As we come to our study, let's ask the Lord's enablement. Our Father, perhaps of the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one person perhaps we have neglected the most is the power of the Holy Spirit and how important he is in our lives. Without him, there is no holiness in our lives. And we need to understand that. There's no driving force to be obedient to the scriptures and to follow you. There's no repentance, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no faith, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So important he is, and I pray that you will help us to see that. And yet we are told in Scripture that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit by our conduct. How shameful that would be. And I pray, Lord, that you will teach us the power of the Spirit, but also our relationship to Him, and in particular how He guides us in our service to you, in the evangelization of the lost, in building up ourselves in the faith and others, through teaching ministry and through prayer and the various graces that we find in the Scripture. We ask that you will bless us in this hour. We take note that there are a lot of our people away. We ask that you'll bring them back safely, protect them on the highways, be with the sick and frail, for we ask your strength for them and your recovery for them. In Christ's name, amen. Our text this morning is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And our theme this morning is Christ and the Holy Spirit. Peter Lewis says in his book, The Glory of Christ, and I'm quoting now, The Holy Spirit is God next to us. I like that. It points out in a succinct way the very essence of the Spirit's role in the Christian life. He goes on to say that every time, and I'm quoting now, in sensitivity and faith, we hear God speaking to us. It is the Spirit who is working. Every time we respond to God's love in the gospel with joy and faithful obedience, It is the Spirit who is blessing. Every time we take the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to others with courage and love, it is the Spirit who is moving us out into the world through us. End quote. Thus the story of the church is the account of the Holy Spirit's presence and work. This is why the book of Acts in the New Testament, which is the historical book of the spread of Christianity, is sometimes designated by some as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to thinking of it as the Acts of the Apostles. And I'm sure that if the Apostles were living among us today, 
they would concur with that definition. They would have no objection. They, more than any of us, recognize that their message, their ministry, were controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, and that apart from the Holy Spirit, there would be no church whatsoever. Every believer is born again into the family of God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that there is a natural birth resulting from the normal process of conception and birth. And he taught that there is a spiritual birth. The first makes us citizens of humanity in which the world becomes our biological home. The second makes us citizens of Christ's body, his church, in which the world is but a stepping stone to our everlasting home with God in glory. In Jesus' words, he puts it this way, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Literally, the Greek says, born from above. He goes on, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. John 3, verse 3 and following. This teaching stumped Nicodemus, a noted rabbi of Jesus' day, and it was stumped by many of the intellectual community in our own day. We are accustomed to dealing with things in the natural world. We're not very adept at dealing with things in the supernatural world. We affirm the natural, we deny the supernatural. This is because all of our experience is in the natural realm. We have no experience in the supernatural. We believe what men tell us because we are men and women like our teachers. We think they know more than us, and so we're willing to listen to them and do as they say. We do not listen to God because God is not one with us we're not as sure of what he teaches as we are of men. That's what the world's problem is with regard to God. Yet even here we tell on ourselves. And what we tell is that for most of us, God would be more believable if he were more like us and less like himself. But, if he were more like us and less like himself, what incentive would we have to obey him over all of our other teachers? And where would be the wonder for God? Oh, he's just like us. Really? Is that the sum total? Then why would he deserve worship when he was altogether just like us. What I'm saying here is, what Jesus told Nicodemus, which is basically this, let me read it for you, and I'm paraphrasing, Nicodemus, you may have trouble understanding and believing 
that you must be born of God, a spiritual birth, which is essentially transforms you in spirit and soul. But like it or not, believe it or not, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born of the Spirit. John 3, verse 5. How radical was that in the day in which Jesus taught that? And how unique. Nicodemus is a rabbi, but he's, he's not getting it. He's getting short-circuited. He's never considered these things. But, <laughs> praise God, Jesus did not back off from this just because Nicodemus had trouble accepting it. And we cannot back off of it either because it is the teaching of the Lord of the church. The wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God makes foolish the wisdom of this world by requiring us his standard, which can only be effected in our lives by himself through his own Holy Spirit. This is an essential lesson for us to learn. We are not our own God as the world would have us believe. We are creatures, not creators. And as such, we are subject to the dictates and wisdom of God Almighty. We can fight this. We can resist this with our intellect, indeed with all of our body, soul, and spirit. But God will be proven true while every man proved to be a liar. Wisdom would take, dictate, therefore, that we swallow our sinful pride and begin to imbibe the wisdom of God, which he so graciously shares with us in his written word. It is a wise person indeed who understands the limitations of his or her own knowledge and is willing to be exposed and examined and corrected and refined and bettered by the wisdom of the infinite and almighty God. Such wisdom is transforming in nature. And that is what is meant by the new birth. The new birth, or the phrase, born again. It is saying you become a new person when the Holy Spirit does his work in your life. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us as we hear of Christ in the gospel. Now, as to Jesus Christ himself, we would expect some similarity in all of this, but also some things which are very unique to him alone. The Spirit of God began his work in Jesus as a human being in his conception and birth. Think on this. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that the Holy Spirit was personally involved in the conception of Jesus. Luke records Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Let me read it for you. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1, verse 35. And Matthew's account relates the conversation to Joseph, who was worried about taking Mary as his bride because it was obvious she was already pregnant. And he thought she had been possibly unfaithful to him. And so, again, Gabriel the angel comes this time to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. What I'm saying here is the Holy Spirit has been active in the life of Christ from the get-go. Both accounts stress the virginity of Mary in the conception. Luke's phraseology, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That reflects in some measure the statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where we are told that of the original creation, the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In creation, it was the Spirit of God who was the actual agent of creation. God the Father said, Jesus was that word. The Father said, it's a word. Let there be, and so forth. That was Christ. And then the Spirit executed the will and the word of God to bring about the desired result. So too, the Spirit of God hovered over or overshadowed Mary's womb in the conception of Jesus. And just as in creation, something brand new was occurring in time-space history, so the Bible says of Jesus' conception, let me read it for you, Jeremiah 31, 22, the Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. Jeremiah 31, verse 22. King James Version will compass a man or encompass, encase a man. And the idea being, a woman by herself will do that without any aid of a man. And in Jesus' case, conception with no sexual intercourse, no sperm to fertilize the ovum, this is indeed new on the earth. Never occurring before, never occurring thereafter, the conception of Christ. And Isaiah prophesied this event, saying, let me read it for you, Isaiah 7, verse 14, the virgin will be with a child. Oh, really? And will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us.
prophesied in Holy Scripture. That's a new thing, boy. That's a unique thing, never to be repeated. Observe, however, that the emphasis of both Matthew and Luke is that Jesus was conceived in Mary. Conceived in Mary. Not simply created within her. This is to say that Jesus' human nature was obtained from Mary so that the writer of Hebrews is correct in describing him as one who shared in our humanity. Oh, Hebrews 2.14. He was not simply a duplicate human nature as though Mary was just some kind of divinely chosen incubator for God's Son. No, Jesus is truly a member of the human race, revitalizing the old and not simply starting afresh. Mary had her part in the generation of the human nature of our Lord. A woman by herself, this is unbelievable, a woman by herself conceived a child from her ovum, from her egg, alone. The role of the Holy Spirit in this is mysterious to be sure because nothing in human experience before or since relates to it. But this we know, whatever the nature of the overshadowing of the Spirit was, the end person was one possessing both God's nature and man's nature. In Jesus, our Lord assumes both. And he takes up both for then and for all of eternity to come. What has not been told us in all of this, we accept on the basis of the word of God. But what has been told calls on all of us to believe it. The only alternative is the skepticism and the mockery of the leaders of Jesus' day who retorted, you'll remember this, they said to Jesus, we are not born of fornication. NIV says, we are not illegitimate children. That is to say, we aren't, but you are. That's what they were saying. They thought they knew of Jesus' origins, you see. They had heard the rumors of Mary's pregnancy before her marriage, and they drew the natural but wrong conclusion of any unenlightened understanding. They thought her to be an immoral woman of all things. And I say that that is all we are left with, too, unless we're prepared to accept God's revelation on the matter. What's the revelation? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, conclusion, 
So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And it is this unique conception and birth which makes Jesus the Son of God and distinguishes him from all other boy babies born in the world. The Holy Spirit operates personally, directly. Now, brethren, there are two forms of knowledge open to us as people of the Word of God. One form of knowledge is divine revelation in which God shares with us as his creatures what he himself knows. This is a freebie. We don't have to work for it. God simply gives us his wisdom out of his grace, out of his mercy. It's called the Bible. It's just given to us. The other source of knowledge is through science, in particular the investigative process. You know about this. A theory is postulated on available data, and then if it can be proven through scientific demonstration, it becomes a law of science. That is, a law until something or someone else discovers something different and refutes it. Now, our world is pretty adept at employing the scientific method. But it has no experience with the supernatural revelations of God. None. Zero. And so because the world cannot prove the virgin birth in the laboratory through replication, it simply denies its reality and mocks Anyone who believes it. Just this week, Bill Maher, you know who he is, on TV, was espounding why he got on the theme of Christian uh, doctrine, I don't know. But he was ridiculing anybody that would believe in the Bible. He says, and I'm quoting now, it's just... A little kitty storybook full of fiction. And only little kids would believe it. Someday, Bill Maher, unless God saves him between now and judgment, is going to stand before the God of creation and explain to him why he didn't believe in the little book of the little kitty stories when the children did believe. This kind of arrogance is in the world everywhere. And if they can't beat us with the truth, they try to ridicule and besmudge us and make us look stupid and irresponsible and so forth to make their point. Now, as Christians, we're not afraid of true science. We're not. Because true science admits 
that it doesn't know everything there is to know. True science acknowledges that there is a vast body of yet undiscovered wisdom and knowledge of which it knows nothing. I mean, if they're honest, they will admit that. It admits, true science admits, to having to change its theories. Well, why would you have to change your theories? In fact, it expects to change them. They expect that to happen because inside they admit they don't know all there is to know about the subject that they're t talking about. So to hedge their bet, they say, well, of course, science comes up with something different. We'll have to change our thinking and alter the proposition accordingly. As Christians, however, we have something better going for us. <clears throat> and that is the infallible revelation of the Bible from the God who knows all things from start to finish and the God who cannot get it now, who cannot lie. Scripture says he cannot lie. One thing we're going to get from God is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Ew, that's, a, that's going to apply in the courts, isn't it? So by his word, we are privy to things that the world cannot know or appreciate. By the Holy Spirit, a new and cataclysmic thing has occurred in our fallen material universe. The supernatural has claimed the natural. The eternal Son has entered human history by means of a human body. God has come among us by becoming one of us. And the Bill Mars of the world, with their smug pride, are going to have to answer to him unless God grants them repentance and faith before they die. Second, not only was the Holy Spirit the key figure in Jesus' conception, he also played the dominant role in Jesus' human development. And when I speak of development, such a word implies change, and it can never be said that God changes. I mean, if he did, he would no longer be God. For perfection, which would be God, is less than perfect when any change occurs. Think about it. So the word development, as applied to Jesus, can only refer to his human nature and growth, never his deity. And we should know that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who executes the operations of God in our world. 
It is he who brings about the day-to-day activities which fulfill the decrees of God above. This work ranges from the bestowing of mental and physical capacities in men to technical and artistic abilities in men to the unique and saving work of softening hard hearts and drawing sinners to believe in Christ and the ongoing work thereafter of making us holy like Christ. The Spirit does all of this and more. In Jesus' humanity, it was the same. We cannot understand the New Testament Jesus apart from this reality that it was the Holy Spirit of God who molded and developed and shaped the human nature of Jesus. Nothing Jesus did in his human nature was done solely from his own divine power. Everything he did at the human level was done by and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if we are taken back by the stupendous miracles of Jesus, it is because we have never witnessed another man completely committed to and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Yet Jesus himself told his apostles, listen to his words, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. John 14, 12. And that is an allusion to the fact that when he gets to the Father, he's going to be sending the Holy Spirit upon the church, which happened on Pentecost. Now for our study today, I want to concentrate so much on Jesus' miracles, but on his personal development as a man. When the Bible states of Jesus that, let me read it for you, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, Luke 2, verse 52, we have insight to the fact that though Jesus was the eternal Son of God, in his humanity there were things of his divinity of which his human mind was unaware. I know, it's mysterious. Does God grow in wisdom? There was a song in the 60s sung by Petula Clark. She's um, a Brit. In which she sang, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that there's not plenty of. Lord, we, we don't need another mountain. There are valleys and hilltops enough to climb. Lord, Lord we don't need another metal. There are meadows and rivers enough to cross. Listen, Lord, if you really want to know what the world needs now is love, sweet love, etc., etc. There's something 
ignorant and arrogant as well to suggest that there are things the Lord doesn't know or even more so that he can be informed how to do things better. If he will but listen. Well, who's he going to listen to? To us, his creatures. How absurd. The creature is going to tell the creator something he doesn't know. Or show him something he doesn't know how to do himself. God knows all things, even before they happen. So God does not grow in wisdom ever. Not ever. But as a human being, Jesus acquired knowledge much like the rest of us do. He did not live out his human life by falling back on his divine nature. The finite did not become infinite. What was conditioned by age and circumstance and experience and culture and his upbringing in a Jewish home did not become unconditioned by his divine nature. This then is real incarnation. A true and total participation in our humanity. A definite humiliation in which the creator became the creature. So in Bethlehem, what do we have? We have a baby that cries to communicate. That nurses on its mother's breasts for food. And produces wet and dirty diapers just like any human baby. In Nazareth we have a young boy growing up in his father's house. Helping his mother with his household chores. Learning to read. Learning to write. Perfecting the carpenter's trade under the tutelage of his earthly father Joseph. By the way, this is not God pretending to be a little boy. But God becoming a little boy. God experiencing in his humanity dependence and growth and learning and perplexity and ignorance at times, the joy of discovery, and so on and so on. And in all of this, the Holy Spirit shaping his character developing his awareness of his relationship to God the Father. He knew he was God's son, not Joseph's son. But he learned of his true identity, firstly, in the relationship established between him and God by the Spirit, and then reinforced as he grew in wisdom and awareness as a human being. 
is just as surely as we grow in understanding as we mature. So in Christ, his understanding matured with age and learning as his intellect was educated by the perception of his divine nature. We cannot believe that his wisdom was divorced from education in the scripture. In the one passage we have of Jesus, as one prepared for his bar mitzvah, the entrance into adult Jewish society according to their rules, we find him at age 12 interacting with the learned teachers in Jerusalem, asking them probing questions which even astonished his hearers because of the depth of his understanding. Luke 2, verse 47, you want to read it. And it was on that occasion that Jesus told Mary and Joseph that he had to be in his father's house, his words, not mine, to conduct his father's business, his words, not mine, which surely tells us that at this point he knew who his real father was and his mission in life was becoming increasingly more clear. The handwriting was on the wall. The carpenter's son would soon be leaving the wood shop and doing totally different kind of work. By the time we find Jesus in public ministry, there is no mystery in his own self-consciousness at all. He knows who he is. He knows why he has come. He speaks and works the will of God always with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, verse 38, Peter gives the synopsis of Jesus' ministry as he preached to the household of Cornelius, Roman centurion. And here's what Peter preached. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And Peter teaches Cornelius here that Jesus performed the miraculous not out of his deity nor even out of his humanity, but rather as one anointed by God's Spirit to do all that he did. In other words, God was with him. May I say this is how he faced the cross. This is how he won. This is how he went to the grave and was victorious over death. Prior to his ascension, Jesus promised not to leave the disciples as orphans, but to come to them in John 14, verse 18. And in the context, he tells us how this was to occur. He writes, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he lives with you and he will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans, he goes on. I will come to you, and on that day you will realize that I am in you. In the next chapter, John 15, verse 23, after stating that those who love him will obey his teachings, Jesus goes on to say, My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. And if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And then in John 16, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I will be going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16, verse 7 and following. Now, near as I can figure out, this business of Jesus going away, yet coming again, of not leaving the disciples as orphans, of God the Father and God the Son taking up residence in his people, of it being advantageous for Christ to return to the Father so that the Counselor might come, and finally of the disciples not being able to comprehend all that Jesus wished to teach them, but being ably equipped after the Spirit came upon them, I mean, it appears to me that Jesus, in his exaltation, was given complete control of his own Holy Spirit to dispense as he saw fit and to return to his people in that spirit to continue his ministry with us by being in us. In us. Paul words it this way. Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. It's okay to think of the Christian as being filled with the Spirit of God. But I think it adds fuller dimension to the concept to realize that it is the same Spirit of Christ which once animated his own mind, speech, actions when he walked this earth 
long ago. It is refreshing to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the spirit that indwells every believer. We are not orphans. We are not left to our own devices. We're not alone. Now, what lessons for our heart? Number one. Jesus knows what it means to be a human being living in the sinful fallen world. Don't ever be guilty of a charging crisis not knowing what you're going through. I think that's a woeful sin. Nothing good and godly came to him automatically, just as nothing good and godly comes to us automatically. The Bible says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity. And for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. You see what he, how important that is? It is so important. Hebrews 2 verse 14 and following. That Christ knows and knew what? we went through in terms of temptation and sin and all that. And because he knows it so well, he can help us. We normally take this to mean the wilderness temptation by the devil, which I'm sure is included, but consider the statements that Christ shared in our humanity and was made like his brothers in every way. I would suggest to you that the temptation of life, while surmised in the three areas of Jesus' battle with Satan in the desert, are far more extensive than per the particulars of that occasion. When you're tempted to rely upon your own reasoning in matters, to accept the philosophy of the world rather than what God says on the matter, Jesus experienced that too. Temptations to advance your own cause through manipulation of others, temptation to gossip, spread vicious rumors, temptation to rear your children on the psychology of human wisdom rather than on God's directive, temptations to deny God or disobey God or just to ignore God. All these things tested the mettle of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he thought that he doesn't understand, or worse, that he doesn't care what we go through trying to live righteously in a wicked world. Those accusations are totally unfounded. We may go to this one who was tempted in all points as we are, and yet was without sin. He can show us how to best 
beat sin instead of being its victims. Are you a victim of sin today? Jesus the Lord can turn your life around. And then let us realize that as believers, we are to live our lives as Jesus lived his. He didn't know everything about God as a human being. Neither do we. But he learned and he grew in maturity. When he didn't know, he wasn't afraid to ask others who did know. He was found with the people of God in the temple of God. Do you remember that? On God's day, searching the scriptures. That's where his parents found him. Some people in our day are so content in their ignorance, they've stopped searching and they stopped learning. Maybe they didn't really try at all. Some are just plain lazy. The Christian faith is not for dummies, no matter how the world scoffs. If you're not reading your Bibles, you will be filled more with the philosophy of this age than the wisdom of God, and the world and its wisdom is destined for hell. If you attend church once in a blue moon, you will be woefully, inadequately equipped to face the hard decisions of life in a God-honoring way, and the example you set for your family will tell them that God isn't very important to you. So why should he be important to them? If you have more excuses than justifiable reason for not fellowshipping with the people of God, your friends will be the people of the world and all the godless thoughts and speech and conduct which so characterize their godless views of life. Can it be charged to your account, Christian, what the writer of Hebrews accused his readers of? Let me read it. He says, we have much to say to you, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. Actually, King James says, you're dull of hearing. In fact, he goes on, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you oh, the elementary truths of God's word all over. We have to go back to baby talk. We have to go back to the ABCs of the faith because through your negligence, you've lost it. Hebrews 5, verse 11 and 12. Now note, he's not saying that they are Stupid. He's not saying that they are mentally deficient. He's saying, you're lazy. You're lazy. You're not applying yourself. to the study of the Word of God.
By the way, it tells us also that God takes note of our spiritual progress or lack thereof. That God expects you to move from the place of student in the things of God to teacher, to become proficient in the faith so you can instruct others. And that is going to be impossible if you slip spiritually and go backwards. If you forget what you've learned and have to have someone deal with you all over again concerning the elementary, that is, the basics of the faith. So may God forgive us for being sleepy and lazy and indifferent and careless and backslidden as Christians. May we see the glory of Christ and strive to become like him even as he was willing to become like us so he could save us. Finally, let us take heart that just as the Spirit of God equipped Jesus for everything he taught and did, so everything you do for God must have the Spirit of God as its source if it is to be approved. God's work done man's way doesn't cut it. God is looking for vessels to fill with his Spirit, vessels fit for the Master's use, the Bible says. And there is nothing we cannot do as a church from building an all-purpose building, if that day comes, to reaching the gospel with our friends and neighbors, which we should be doing, if we will renounce self and selfishness and be led by the Spirit of our Holy Lord. So, let's resolve to get better acquainted with him from this day on. James put it this way, submit yourselves to God. Res excuse me, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. James 4, verse 1. The fault always lies with us not God. God has provided us in the scripture. He's provided us with teachers that have studied the word of God. He's given us a country that allows us to meet on one day in seven without fear of, uh, at least for now, without fear of uh, trespassing, without fear of a danger to our lives for doing so. He's given us all of this so that what? We can be lazy and indifferent? No. So that we will prosper in growing in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and be able to publicly represent him to a lost and dying world. I think, I think our country is really hungry for the truth if someone would just tell it to them. I don't think you're going to have to go out and beat bushes to try to find people that will listen to you. I found 
if you start with a conversation spiritually, I had this happen when I was driving a bus, but at the lunch, menu, lunch table, when we were all taking our breaks, we would get into discussions, and I would bring in the spiritual aspect of it, and these people were eating it up. They're sitting around the table, and I'm having a Bible class with pagans. They didn't go to church ever. They didn't come from Christian homes, no. But they were hungry to hear something about eternal life and the world to come and what's going to happen with them and their families and their children and their work and all of those various things that piece together. You're always going to find some that are going to be super skeptical and mocking like Bill Maher talking about us following little kitty tales. But let him perish in his own sin and go and be stupid if he wants to be stupid and callous. But God will get the glory in the end. But there's so many others out there that are willing to listen and learn. And you are the Bible they will read. May God give us courage. And you know, it's joy. It's really joyful to see somebody that doesn't know anything about the Bible, and you're the teacher, and it's absolutely joyful to see them. The light come on. Right, George? The light comes on, and you see a sparkle in their eyes. Their chin goes up, and they begin to smile. And they begin to think, why, this is great stuff. Why haven't I heard this before? And that's the way they receive it. And you say, well, I thought the devil would ruin that, steal the seed and all that. He can do that. But if we enter into our responsibilities by the power of the Holy Spirit, which I've been talking about today, the Holy Spirit's more powerful than the devil ever will be. And... He can thwart the evil one and allow the seed to take take seed and go into the ground and produce fruit for God. It's exciting to think that that can happen and that it will happen if we're dependent upon God. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for sending your spirit. You, you told the disciples, you're going to go away and leave them behind. And they were sad to hear that, but they were told not to be sad because you were going to send another counselor who would show them the truth and lead them and empower them. And that other counselor was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's been doing his work for thousands of years, saving whom he will. Continuing to do the work of God. Lord, we thank you that you're not done with us. Ask your blessing upon the word today in Christ. Amen. Okay, our closing hymn from Trinity. 469.
When you find 469, will you stand with me? Our Lord, we're thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit, especially <clears throat> how he uses the Bible, the Word of God, in a way to bring conviction to our sinful hearts and repentance of those sins that we might become the children of God. If there's one here today that has not made 
God their Savior, we pray that they might be drawn by the Holy Spirit to believe. Grant them faith. Grant them repentance. Change their life right now and make them a child of God. Not only for now, but for all the rest of their life. Bless our people that are away, that are traveling. In this day and age, the highways are so busy and so dangerous that a prayer for your protection is fully within the confines of what we should be praying about. We ask, Lord, you'll bring everyone back safely. But also refreshed from the fact that they had some time with family and some time to just be with one another and to share genuine love and care and concern. We thank you for the truth of your word. May the sword of the Spirit, which it is, strike into our heart, cut away the sin that's there, and grant to us healing power. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Mm-hmm.